I'm Jason Klom, and this is the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. Welcome to the Comedy on Vinyl miniseries Family Albums, Episode 8, Dick Davey, Part 3. In my first episode about Dick Davey, you might recall that one of the many things that endeared Dick Davey to me was his ability to pad a resume in a creative way. He and I both built up our acting CVs with an impressive-sounding extra gig or two, or several, as in my case. Not long after the first Dick Davey episode, I stumbled upon an article, written by Wisconsin historian Stephen K. Hauser, that made me feel even further kinship to Dick. As it turns out, while he was on tour, he would sometimes come back through Wisconsin, and eventually he established a relationship with a local DJ known as Dr. Bob. Years before, Davey had spent a lot of time in the Wisconsin area, performing at synagogues as Richard Davey, and eventually performing with the Western-themed folk group the Ten Gallon Trio. When he was doing club dates and promoting his records almost a decade later, he'd stop by radio station WAWA and hang out for a show with Dr. Bob. And eventually the two started promoting Dick's appearances with a fake campaign for the White House, with Dr. Bob running for president and Davey as his running mate. Since 2004, I've been running a fake campaign for the presidency. That turned into a book, a couple of movies, and soon another podcast. At the same time, I've also been working with my friend and former Comedy on Vinyl guest Matt Sachs on a documentary on the vice presidency. My obsession with this office was my first research addiction, so the idea that Dick Davey was playing this character of a VP in waiting made me endlessly curious. It added a new layer to what I already knew about him. So I asked Steven Hauser if he'd sit down with me and finally give me the perspective of a fan who heard Dick while he was still performing. The perspective of someone who only knew Dick Davey from what was presented to the public. Fortunately, he kindly agreed. So here's my interview with Stephen K. Hauser on the phone from Wisconsin. And stick around after the interview. We've got some exciting news from the Dick Davey archive you won't want to miss. Well, I'm a lifelong Wisconsinite and uh, fifth generation here in, in, in the Badger State. Uh, I was a... Uh, a fan of pop music back in the mid-1960s, as every teenager was. And uh, before I got interested in rock and roll records, I was interested in comedy albums. I think my interest in comedy albums started when uh, Vaughn Meter's first family album came out when I was 10 years old in 1962. And uh, I remember buying that album and just thinking that was the greatest thing in the world. Uh, I loved the political humor of it, and even though I was just a kid, I thought uh, thought that was great. Well, I ended up being a fan of uh, everybody from uh, Alan Sherman to Bill Dana to uh, uh, to uh, uh, Don Adams and some of the others who had uh, really great comedy recordings in the '60s. I still I still find those old albums funny today. Well, by the time I was a little older, I was buying records by the Searchers and the Rolling Stones and the Dave Clark Five and uh, had uh, moved beyond the comedy albums, but uh, I also had developed an interest in uh, in soul music and uh, started listening to Milwaukee's WAWA radio, which played the R&B hits of the day, uh, which often weren't played in those days on Top 40 radio. Uh, I'll give you one example of that. Uh, Percy Sledge's great hit, uh, When a Man Loves a Woman. Uh, was a monster record, a number one record on uh, Billboard, by the way. Mm -hmm. It never charted 
on the two top 40 stations in Milwaukee, WOKY and WRIT, but it was a top 10 hit on WAWA. Well, so there were certain records you could hear there that you couldn't hear anywhere else. Uh, that was a 1966 release. So by mid-66, I'm listening to WAWA, and that was my exposure to Dick Davey. Uh, the most popular disc jockey on WAWA radio was uh, Dr. Bob an African-American DJ from uh, Ohio who had been hired at WAWA, had come to Milwaukee, and had developed uh, quite a following, uh, both in the uh, black and white communities of, of that day, and uh, did a lot of CYO dances. Uh, in fact, uh, became very popular as a, as a personality to come and uh, uh, attend these dances and uh, be part of the... Uh, uh, be part of the scene for the kids. Mm-hmm. Spun a lot of records. Uh, he's he spun the soul records, but he spun the uh, the top forty uh, hits as well of the day. And um, he started to play excerpts from Dick Davies albums. Uh, the first album that Dick Davy did, uh, "You're a Long Way from Home, Whitey," uh, live at the Apollo. Uh, that album was released in August of '66 by Columbia Records. In fact, it came out around the same time as The Birds' uh, uh, third album, and um, uh, it uh, began to get some airplay on uh, on uh, Dr. Bob's program. Dr. Bob did play comedy records. He played uh, some Pigmeat Markham, some uh, Mom's Mabley, and uh, Dick Davey was a little bit different because he was edgy, he was politically uh, astute, he was a, 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 a topical comic, uh-huh. and... Uh, his style was just kind of this wandering uh, uh, style of, uh, of of presenting uh, one thing after another, seemingly disconnected stories and facts that somehow wove together to to make a very long shaggy dog story mm-hmm. into a joke. Um, well, anyway, uh, Dick's uh, uh, Dick's album was funny, and it was funny in a gentle sort of way. And I think uh, people today might not understand that. Some of the anger that you see in political humor today, or at least that I see in it, uh, was absent from uh, that humor in the mid-60s, even as turbulent a decade as that, as that was. Uh, Dick's humor was, was friendly. It was an aw-shucks kind of uh, disarming uh, gentleness, but uh, he made his point. And uh, uh, that album was, uh, was played on WAWA. And then uh, the next album, interestingly enough, uh, Stronger Than Dirt, the second Columbia album, did not come out until uh, the uh, the fall of 1967, uh, over a year later. And by that time, uh, uh, of course, Dr. Bob played that one as well, and I imagine Dick Davey or somebody at Columbia heard that this record was getting plugged on WABA, and he came here as part of a personal appearance tour. And uh, that was where uh, the whole genesis of uh, of uh, Dr. Bob's presidential campaign came in. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Bob decided he was going to run for president of the United States uh, in the way Pat Paulson did, yeah. or, or actually in the way Mark Twain did back in the uh, 1880s when he uh, launched a, a full presidential campaign and uh, uh, did it just to lampoon the uh, the bigwigs of his time. Well, Dr. Bopp uh, decided he was going to run for president as the WAWA sole power candidate, printed up some buttons and bumper stickers, and uh, when Dick Davey arrived in town, 
uh, he was uh, uh, coronated, you might say, as Dr. Bopp's uh, running mate. And so he became the vice presidential candidate on Dr. Bopp's ticket. They appeared on the radio together and uh, swapped jokes and you know, one-liners. And uh, Dr. Bopp took uh, Dick Davey around to the local high schools, to uh, uh, especially some of those schools in the inner-city community that uh-huh. were uh, predominantly uh, black high schools, and had him talk to the school assemblies. Wow. And uh, it was at that time that... Uh, uh, that uh, the Milwaukee Journal newspaper, which was one of our two daily newspapers in Milwaukee at that time and was the one with the larger circulation, decided to write a story about it all. And Michael Drew, who was their um, uh, their uh, reporter for all things news and television and radio and media, decided to put this in his Milwaukee studio notes column. And he did an interview with Dr. Bopp and Dick Davey. And I still remember the beginning of that. Most of this year's presidential aspirants are being coy about their intentions, but not one Milwaukeean. And then it goes on from there and talks about their uh, their rather tongue-in-cheek uh, presidential efforts. And there was a picture of Dick Davey and Dr. Bopp together uh, in the article. Uh, anyway, uh, all of that is long ago. Uh, I know that uh, Dick Davey always claimed to be a uh, uh, a small-town hillbilly, actually, is what he called himself, uh-huh. uh, from Arkansas, from Evening Shade, Arkansas. And there really is such a place. It's actually in uh, northern Arkansas, north-central Arkansas, uh, just south of uh, Mammoth Springs, up near the uh, uh, Missouri border. And the last time I checked, I think there were 300 and 400 people living there. Uh, but um, uh, since then, uh, there's been a book published, a Gold Mines Comedy Record Price Guide, uh, which yeah. was written or compiled at least by Ronald Smith. And uh, that book is great for anyone like myself who still collects old comedy albums and still finds them amusing. Yeah. Uh, well, that book came out in 1996, about uh, 20 years ago. And in the book, there's a listing for Dick Davey. And Smith says that Dick Davey was a Jewish comedian from New York City. Yeah. Now, that was news to me. Uh And (laughs) it means that he did a pretty good Arkansas accent for a New York City fellow. Yeah. Um, If that's true, uh, he created a persona or a character that was very convincing. I mean, everybody knew that the drawl and the... uh, uh, the, the pregnant pauses in his delivery were exaggerated for comedic effect. Sure. As far as the voice, it was, it was pretty much spot on. I've known people from Arkansas, and he sounded like them to me. Uh, but if it was indeed a character, it was a masterful creation. And uh, I would put it on a level with, with Hal Holbrook uh, doing Mark Twain tonight. For sure. Uh, I've seen Hal Holbrook do that show on stage. And I'll tell you, he, you see Mark Twain. You don't see Hal Holbrook yeah. when he's on stage doing that role. Uh, in a comedic sense, this might be a lot closer to uh, uh, Bill Dana's creation of Jose Jimenez mm-hmm. or um, to the creation of uh, Charlie Weaver by Cliff Arquette. Yeah. I think a lot of people never even knew there was a Cliff Arquette. They <laughs> right. thought Charlie Weaver was Charlie Weaver. And it was partly because those characters that they created uh, were so three-dimensional yeah. in their... Uh, in their enactment, that they really became those people. 
and uh, that's what's remarkable for me. Now, for the last 38 years, I've been a college history professor, which is how I've learned to talk in 50-minute increments without uh, losing my, my flow of consciousness here. <laughs> but, uh, but as somebody who's taught uh, college history for a, a long time, for uh, verging on 40 years, I, uh, I can tell you that I, um, I understand the place of comedy in history. And it is very much a reflection of who we are. Uh, the comedian, uh, uh, the comedian, is somebody that uh, that holds a mirror up to society, at least if he's any good. Uh, and I think Dick Davy did that very well. And as I said earlier, he did it in a way uh, that was gentle, that was not uh, accusatory, uh, that was not nasty. I don't think there was any nastiness in Dick Davy, uh, but um, he pointed out the foibles of of everybody, and he made fun of his audiences. Uh, both left and right, both black and white, both liberal and conservative. I think everybody got skewered a little bit here and there. And he had fun doing it, and his audience, at least uh, according to the reaction on the records, seemed to enjoy it as well. Uh, he made a few appearances on Merv Griffin's show. In fact, uh, in reviewing these albums in preparing to talk to you, I, uh, I saw that Griffin had written the, uh, the liner notes on the back of the uh, first album. Right. But uh, but it's interesting that um, his appearances on that show uh, apparently uh, are cut out of the syndicated versions that they're showing on the uh, the oldies television stations. I saw one so strange, uh, well, rather recently, and his segment was removed from the show. Although the 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 show was originally ninety minutes, it was shown in a sixty minute uh, format. Oh, okay, interesting. I wonder what their reason would have been for cutting it. Maybe, maybe they just. Because well, nobody knows. Got to feed more commercials in there too. For sure. But he did show up. He was still on the couch at the end when they dismissed and uh, wandered off the stage. Uh, there was Dick Davey with everyone else, and uh, he so he was on the show. And I'm assuming that since that episode was preserved, uh, there's probably a fuller version of it somewhere in the can that uh, that somebody could see if they if they if they uh, if they burrowed for it. Yeah, um, I've been wondering you know, the same thing. Another thing about Dick Davey, mm-hmm. there's almost. You know, there's almost the style of the Southern Preacher with the guy. He ended the uh, Stronger Than Dirt album uh, with a quote from uh, Isaiah 11. And it's actually a misquote. It's a paraphrase. Everybody talks about the lion laying down with the lamb. And that's actually from a very famous painting showing the lion and the lamb together. But uh, it's from the Old Testament book of Isaiah where the prophet... uh, talks about the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And uh, all of this is about the coming peace of the world in some future post-apocalyptic age. Uh, and uh, yeah, so the guy, was, the guy knew his scriptures, too. And yeah. uh, for an African-American audience at that time, uh, the black church has always been very familiar with the, with the scripture, mm-hmm. more so, I think, than the... Uh, white, uh, mainstream, orthodox Christian churches. Uh, in fact, uh, the one exception to that would be the Baptists. Uh, regardless of their racial background, they're pretty knowledgeable on their scriptures. But, um, but uh, for, for a black audience at that time, I think, uh, you know, they knew where he was coming from when he quoted the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, there are a number of things that you brought up that are—you're absolutely right. So he was—that was one of those things that kind of— um, stood out to me and to Cliff Nesteroff was that this guy was doing this voice. But the thing is, this voice 
Uh, I'm assuming he didn't break that at all on, on, on the radio because I've spoken to people who knew him socially, and he didn't break the voice socially. Which, hmm. which is, I don't know what to make of that, and I'll never know. I'll never get an answer on it, but that was a character he kept up. But, yeah, I mean, I've also since spoken to his family, and his family has, you know, they're like, we don't know where the accent came from. We're not sure why he chose Arkansas. He did own some land in Arkansas at one point, but... Um, there are a lot of gaps, a lot of gaps. But he, uh, his father was a very famous rabbi in New York. Um, not uh, he was a very well-known rabbi and a big pacifist, which makes sense. I think a lot of that got passed on to to Dick Davy. Um, so, uh, so his real name was Richard Hoffman. That was Richard David Hoffman. That was his real name. Um, and but what's so funny is like of all the stuff that I dug up about him, I still don't know. There's still a lot of gaps as to why he went that way in comedy, why he went character, uh, why you know I, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure. So what? So I'm assuming you got to listen to. Did you hear all of the interviews on the radio with him and Doctor Bob? Uh, well, he. I don't have any of the uh, the old tapes. The funny thing is, I used to tape Doctor Bob's show because it was the best way to hear all the forty fives you couldn't afford to buy. Oh, at sure, that time. yeah. Uh, it, <laughs> It's amazing to look back on that and remember that I could get a 45 RPM record for 69 cents and I couldn't afford more of them. That would right. be amazing. Right. But um, I did tape them, but all of those old reel-to-reel tapes I had were long ago taped over again and again. Sure. As you used to do back then. You remember a reel-to-reel tape uh, for, for a tape recorder uh, cost you about four or five bucks. Oh, sure. And uh, if you had a little tape recorder, you could get them a little cheaper, but... But the fact is that uh, you, you would you would economize by using the same one. So I don't have them, but I do remember him being interviewed on the radio, and I also remember Doctor Bob playing excerpts from his albums and breaking in in the middle of the routine. <laughs> and they, that's my running mate. That's my running mate. You know, and uh, there there was a break in style that uh, that Soul Radio used back in the um, back in the sixties where the, the, the DJ was very much a personality DJ. You didn't last long if you didn't have a, a bombastic personality. Dr. Bob used to come across on the radio like Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm 42 across the chest, and twice the lover your husband will ever be. You know, stuff <laughs> like that, the braggadocia. And he would often break into records. And uh, he'd, he'd make some sly remark, or he'd uh, dedicate the song to somebody who had called into the studio. And uh, those studios were only about a, oh gosh, only about a mile, two miles from my house. Oh, wow. And uh, sometimes we'd go over there and hang around and uh, listen to the broadcast uh, uh, right there, uh, hanging outside the studio. And you could hear outside because they'd actually broadcast it outside. Oh, that's great. If we wanted to listen, we we could. Uh, But, but, uh, you know, the, the, the interesting thing, and it's kind of a curiosity for me, too, is that uh, uh, my cousin is a fellow by the name of Bill Taylor. Uh, Bill was a uh, uh, disc jockey on WOKY Radio in Milwaukee, and uh, he later went out to uh, Los Angeles, okay. uh, where he worked on, uh, I believe, KFWB and some of the other uh, L.A. stations uh, at doing Top 40 Radio before that format uh, had shifted, I think, eventually to all news. Uh-huh. I even read the news out there for a while. Well, Bill always wanted to get into comedy. Mm-hmm. In fact, Bill did a very rare record that I sometimes see on the auction lists for 30 40 bucks 
Uh, it's a break-in 45, like Dickie Goodman used yeah. to do, and it's a lullaby to Carolyn. He did it as an impersonation of John Kennedy. Oh, my God. And he did a very good one. I think it's as good as Vaughn Meters. And uh, he would lead into these uh, these clipped lyrics from the uh, from the, the hits of the day, and uh, things like "I don't like it, but I guess things happen that way" or "foot stomping," and these would be integrated into the track. Wow. Well, at any rate, uh, the record came out unfortunately not long before the Kennedy assassination in '63, uh-huh. and that was the end of his attempt to build a career <laughs> oh <laughs> imitating John Kennedy. Oh my God! For obvious reasons. Yeah. He wasn't alone in that. No, yeah. Um, wow. I don't remember I don't know if you remember Lenny Bruce's uh, comment the night uh, <laughs> yes. John Kennedy was killed. He, he he did his late night show anyway and went out on stage and as the audience sat there wondering what in the world Lenny Bruce could say about this, he took the mic and said, "Damn, poor Vaughn Meter." <laughs> uh and that was, of course that was Lenny Bruce. He was yeah. the one guy that could get away with it. Of course, right. Uh, anybody else, they, they would have stoned him, I think. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But you sort of expected that from Lenny Bruce. Now, there again, I don't think that's something Dick Davey would have done. Right, no, I, no, I, no. He just seems to have a sort of an ethical guide that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get vicious, I'm not going to go there, I'm not going to be that nasty. But on the other hand, uh, back to Bill's story, uh, Bill went out to L.A. and started doing stand-up in the clubs. Uh-huh. And uh, he was heard by somebody who was a, a producer for the Joey Bishop show on ABC TV. Joey Bishop had a late-night talk show opposite Johnny Carson back about 1967-68, that era. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the show being on the air because I remember watching the Seeds uh, singing Pushing Too Hard on the Joey Bishop show. Mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, at any rate, uh, they asked Bill to be on the show, and he was on the Joey Bishop program twice. Oh, Wow. Uh, was scheduled three times, and they ran out of time on one occasion, so he didn't, didn't make an appearance. But Bill was on the show, and he was very acquainted with those who were doing stand-up back then. You know, mm-hmm. and he, he's, he's very knowledgeable on uh, Allen and Rossi and uh, uh, Rodney Dangerfield and uh, uh, even the great Henny Youngman and, of course, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, some, of the, some of the other characters of that time. Uh, but um, I've asked him about Dick Davey. In fact, in preparation for talking to you, I called Bill yesterday, mm-hmm. and I said, do you remember Dick Davey? And the fascinating thing to me is he remembered absolutely nothing about Dick Davey. <laughs> okay. And he does know some of the lesser names who maybe didn't make as big a wave or as big an impact mm-hmm. uh, at the time, but he doesn't remember Dick Davey at all. Interesting. And I know Dick Davey played L.A. at yes, the time yeah. that uh, uh, Bill was living there because uh, his second album is recorded in L.A. Yeah. And so he definitely was doing the, 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 the circuit out there, and uh, he'd be the kind of guy that, that Bill might have opened for, uh, but he doesn't remember him at all. That's interesting. Now, I've since learned also that Columbia because they were a little worried about some of what Dick Davey would say on that second album, Stronger Than Dirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, they put out, uh, uh, what would be the word, a, an edited uh, number of tracks. There's a 45 RPM promo for radio stations only, which mm-hmm. I have, that has seven selections on one side and three longer selections on the other side, but they're all very short. And 
and uh, it was for something that could be cleared for radio play, that you wouldn't offend anybody, you weren't going to get angry phone calls or letters from uh, listeners, and uh, that was apparently what Dr. Bop was actually playing on the air, to keep clear of any trouble. Okay, okay. Um, I, I listened to the two albums again yesterday in, in preparation for talking to you today, and I'll tell you, uh, what's interesting to me is that... Uh, you know, it is. It's. It, it's. 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 It's not crude. Uh, he doesn't go where Lenny Bruce goes. Um, it's more like a uh, a Southern hillbilly Mort Saul is what it is. For sure. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, but at the same time, uh, he says some things there that would get him in trouble today. He, he, there's a little bit there. Uh, I think it's from the '66. Uh, uh, no, I think it's from the uh, the '67 album, where he says that. Uh, he says, do you remember that Marine who did all that fancy shooting from the tower down in Texas? Oh, right. Of course, he's referring to that very famous university incident where several people were tragically killed. Mm-hmm. And he says uh, he didn't get no medal from LBJ. All he got was some lead right back. Seems to me there's no future uh, in private enterprise anymore. you got to work for the government. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was referring to the killing in Vietnam and comparing yeah. that to the ex-Marine shooting from the, the tower. I don't think you, you could get very far with that today. No, no uh, you're right. Somebody uh, calling you on the carpet that uh, that 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 brings back my pain, or that that was very hurtful to me. I'm a relative of some person who was injured. Uh, it, it you couldn't get away with doing what Dick Davey did at the time, and it's interesting. I'm I'm still old enough to remember when when Dick Gregory spoke at the Milwaukee Area Technical College in the '60s and. Uh, when uh, there were some edgy comedians brought into Marquette University. Uh, Marquette's a, a Catholic a Jesuit institution, but uh, uh, but they could be rather topical back in those days. And, uh, uh, and uh, I taught at Marquette later on for 25 years, uh-huh. from uh, uh, about uh, n- uh, 1988 to uh, about 2013. So, uh, you know, I, I understand that... Uh, it, the atmosphere has changed a lot, and uh, I think Dick Davy was part of a very special place and time. I would love to know. Uh, we, we mentioned when when I spoke earlier about the the, the aborted uh, twofer release that had come out and apparently right. briefly advertised in Collector's Choice uh, CD magazine uh, of his two albums on one CD. Uh, I never saw anything further about that. I probably should have ordered them, but I have a hunch they wouldn't have come. I think that was pulled or shelved for whatever reason, and I can kind of imagine what the reason might be. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd love to know if any of his stuff was ever going to be released on CD. Now, the fact that he's dead, uh, I imagine imagine Sony, which purchased Columbia, uh, owns the right to the... uh, uh, to the tapes at this point, mm-hmm. uh, but what's going to happen with them? I don't know. It's uh, it, it is interesting to me that number one, he could drop off the face of the earth as totally as he did. There right, f- fellow who had a website that that you know or are acquainted with that mentioned he was at one point, I think, a substitute teacher in Harlem. Yeah, yep. And uh, I don't know about that, but um, I know that when the comedy book came out. Uh, and, and and mentioned twenty years ago that this guy was a was was a, was from New York City. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I was shocked because uh, he had uh, 
he he suckered me in for uh, for what would that be thirty years? Right. <laughs> I was convinced this guy was a small town hick from uh, uh, Evening Shade, Arkansas, just as he pretended to be. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, he he got us all pretty good. And what's so funny is uh, along every step of the way, even after reading through, you know, something like that or through there's a book called The Last Laugh by Phil Berger that's got an interview with him digging through that even I can. Uh, and after speaking to his family, he even told some slightly shifted truths to people who interviewed him, even when he pretended to be uh, entirely truthful, uh, which is fine. I mean, he might have been trying to hide things he didn't think was anybody's business, but it, it is interesting uh, that he's just kind of he's kind of one big mystery, even when you find out as much as I have found out about him. Um, well, you, your mother always told you you could be whoever you wanted to be in life. Uh, here's a guy who lived it. Yeah, right. hundred <laughs> you know, percent. He took it literally. Yeah. And decided, well, this is who I'm going to be, and uh, that's that's rather <laughs> interesting to me. Um, the, the fact that his dad was a, was a rabbi in New York. Yeah. That that certainly explains his. His knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures For and sure. where he could come up with the lion and the lamb, and uh, that answers that part of the uh, the question. Definitely, uh, I always just made the assumption it was sitting it was from sitting in some Pentecostal services down there in uh, in Arkansas when he <laughs> right. was a kid. But uh, uh, apparently, he had it in his own family that uh, certainly a, a rabbi would know the scriptures and would would uh, teach them to his son. Uh, now, did his family say that he'd become so eccentric that when he was with his family, he used that accent? No. Uh, his, now, uh, the only person I interviewed that's uh, that was in his family that knew him super closely was well. No, no actually, no. I'm sorry. I'm going to flip that. Uh, I, I did the the person who knew him closest was his uh, his widow. They were never married, but she's his widow because they were together for 25 years. And she said no, 100. percent He would never use the accent. She never heard him use the accent in the 25 years she knew him. Um, so that. Never. It, by the time she met him, of course, uh, the the act had gone by the wayside. Um, and but everybody else had said no. He was himself when he was with us, which begs the question: What the hell did he sound like? This is what's killing me. I need. I want to hear tapes of him talking as just himself. But those don't exist, to the best of my knowledge. I want to know what he really sounded like. Well, you know, uh, he mentioned in the interview with uh, the Milwaukee Journal. Uh, that he'd done the Merv Griffin show six times. At least. Mm -hmm. That's what he said. And he said, but I've not been on in the last year because I've gotten too controversial. They don't want me anymore. Interesting. And that was an interesting quote. Uh, it is true that he just sort of dropped from the airwaves. I know a lot of comedians, after their, their heyday, they continued doing stand-up and even making records on some smaller or less significant record label. Mm -hmm. uh, they go from a label like uh, uh, Epic or Columbia to a label like, uh, 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 like uh, Evergreen or uh, Churchill or one of these very, very minor labels. It's sort of what happened to a lot of the crooners and others when they passed their heyday they'd get a contract with some little label that was hoping to somehow score a hit. Mm -hmm. Do you know if Dick Davey did any more recording after those two albums? I have heard that uh, nothing about that. I mean, I've very specifically heard, and I read and then confirmed it with his girlfriend, that he essentially quit stand-up after MLK was assassinated. Now, he did do some performances or some appearances here and there that I think were probably more geared towards marches and towards, you know, helping helping people out. And, you know, whenever he could kind of MC an event that was important to him. But other than that, like straight stand-up, it seems he stopped after MLK's assassination and went just went back to teaching school full-time. Huh. Yeah. 
Did you did you get any corroboration that he actually worked as a school teacher in New York? Yes, uh, and I've actually since uh, spoken with some people at I don't have I don't know the schools he taught at specifically, but I have spoken with the New York uh, the the public school system, and they are doing some digging to let me know what schools he worked at because I would like to know people he worked with or students he might have uh, you know affected because from every story I've heard he was actually a pretty effectual teacher even though he was. Um, not entirely curriculum based. He was very much very freewheeling, as you might imagine. I I can believe that. I had a, a friend in Chicago by the name of Quinn Brisbane, who was a history teacher in the Chicago public schools, and I don't think Quinn knew what a syllabus was. <laughs> but kids never left his class or skipped his class. They loved listening to the guy because he was a storyteller. Right, and, and I think sometimes that's the best way to get history across. Uh, a lot of my colleagues forget that the last word in history is story. Right. And they try to hit the kids over the head with, with nothing but dates, and uh, they lose the interest of the class. But you tell history as a story, well, well, hell, those guys who lived those stories, those guys whose lives you're talking about thought they were pretty colorful people. They right. thought they were darn interesting. Yeah. And I always tell people it takes a professional historian to make them boring, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> which it often does. But, sure. But um, but I can see Dick Davy in that role. I would think the kids would have loved him uh, in a classroom. Yeah. Um, now here's here's a real question for you, and I'm sure you probably don't know yet. Uh, be fun to find a couple students who had him. I wonder if he used that accent in class. That is one of my biggest questions because in the book, The Last Laugh, um, Phil Berger, who's interviewing him, says that the accent kind of goes in and out. And I, I'm now now looking back and knowing what I I know, I'm like. That actually probably tracks. I will bet he's like, oh, this is my first interview in a few years. You know, maybe maybe I'll kind of uh, bring out the accent a bit. But I, I do wonder if that had anything to do with his style of teaching or if they straight up knew he was just this Jewish dude from, you know, from the Upper West Side. But I don't know. I, I That is one of the big questions I have. And that's why I'm just one student. All I need to find is one student. They'll know, you know, and that's oh, it's killing me to not know. Yeah, it's uh you know, it, it raises an interesting question. You know, what did uh, what did Cliff Arquette do to get in character as Charlie Weaver on the Hollywood Squares? Right. You know, when he was backstage waiting to go on and getting his getting his makeup on, did he become Charlie Weaver at that point, or was he Cliff Arquette until the moment he walked onto that stage? I don't know. Yeah. But to what extent do you have to be the character to be good? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, they always tell the stories about Jonathan Winters, that he got to the point where he couldn't turn it off. Mm-hmm. And his family worried about him because he was Maudie Frickard for three straight days. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that could be a little dangerous. I have a feeling that might be what it was like to live with Robin Williams, too. Oh, for sure. But, that's that's what I always imagined. But, uh, but you know, uh, creating a character that's that in, in, enduring, that you, you become the character... There's there's a mastery to that that I almost envy. Uh, it's uh, it very much uh, you know they interviewed um, Henry Wickler uh, a number of years ago about his Fonz character and uh-huh. asked him if he was bitter that that character had taken over uh, everyone's public assumptions about him and that when people saw Henry Winkler they point and say look it's the Fonz and most actors hate that. Mm-hmm. You know, Pernell Roberts left Bonanza because he didn't want to be Adam Cartwright. Uh, the uh, there's, there's a there's a great hatred of that among actors who believe that if they're really going to hone their craft and develop their skills, they need to be something more than one pat character. 
Right. But Winkler gave a surprising reply. He said, no. He said, people struggle all their lives in this profession to become so utterly recognized in a particular role that no one else could ever play that role, that it becomes synonymous with who they are. And most actors never reach that pinnacle of success. Why would I uh, be bitter right. about achieving a level of success in my career that few others of my peers have ever achieved? That's pretty. And beautiful. I thought that was a fascinating response on Winkler's part, that he not only didn't resent being the Fonz to the public, he embraced it. Yeah. And uh, that's unusual, because sure. uh, a lot of people will say, oh, God, I never should have taken that role, because I was nothing else but that role afterwards. Uh, yeah, I find that Tina interesting. Louise from Gilligan's Island, she virtually went into hiding after that show. Mm-hmm. She claimed it ruined her career. Man. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I, I mean, maybe, maybe Henry Winkler's had a, had the luck of the draw there where he, he still got to work after, but still, yeah, I, I the, what he says makes sense. The idea that, you know, why would you be upset that, uh, you know, you, you had this lasting impact? And I mean, you know, you 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 uh, you work in history, and one of the things we talk about a lot on this show is it's kind of inevitable that what I'm talking about is not my legacy, but the legacy of all these different people. I talk with archivists all the time, and like legacy is just a huge is, is such a huge part of this for people, and I think f- for actors that's no different. They're they're probably always concerned with what their legacy is. So he's got his kind of locked in at least for you know for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such yeah. a huge part you know, of it. It's uh, it's interesting. Well, I you know I I sure am glad to talk about talk to somebody who remembers Dick Davy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, other than myself, no one does. Dr. Bob passed away a number of years ago, and mm-hmm. I never got him a, ch- a chance to ask him about that. Uh, there are still some other DJs from that station who are still alive, but uh, they don't remember an awful lot about that era except uh, the great music they played, which is what it's really sure, all about. Sure, of course. Radio. And uh, uh, so it's, 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 it's interesting to me to find out a number of things about... Uh, Dick Davey, I sure never would have guessed his dad was a rabbi. Right, right, I know. Do you, uh, I, I'm curious, so you, the reason I found you is you wrote this really great article uh, in, in a series, from what I understand, about the history of WAWA in the Elm Grove. Yes, I, it was a five-part series. Yeah. And um, actually, uh, we're, hopefully, we're going to consolidate all five of those parts into a chapter on the history of, uh, of Wisconsin music which may be published by Marquette Press within the Wonderful. next year. Oh, my God. I'm not great. the editor of the project, so I know nothing about that. But sure. I made uh, five contributions to that, uh, that series. Uh, wow. One was about what we call Milwaukee's first rock concert, uh-huh. uh, the Dave Clark Five appearance at Divine's Ballroom uh, in Milwaukee, which was where Buddy Holly had played years earlier. Mm-hmm. And um, another contribution was on the, the, the Coachman, uh, a Waukesha, Wisconsin uh, folk group that really was, uh, I think, for the for my money, uh, the, the best uh, folk group to come out of the Kingston Trio era in uh, Wisconsin. And then I wrote uh, this, this series on WAWA, so hopefully that'll come out. If you need the other copies, I can see if I can get those copied and send them to you if you need the complete history of the station. But I mean, that'd be Davey wonderful. Davey was only yeah. mentioned in one of those installments, and that was the Winds of Change at WAWA, uh, which was... Uh, back in 2013 and that that one you already have i understand i do and it, since it's a pdf i'll hunt and see if i can find the other ones uh as well so you don't have to bother they should be up anybody. online they should be yeah uh, 
they're, they have a website, elmgrove.news. Okay. Um, uh, Elm Grove, one word, and then dot .news, and uh, that's the archive site as well. Mm-hmm. So you should be able to find them. If you have any trouble, let me know. Yeah. Meanwhile, I did some uh, scanning and Xeroxing for you. Very kind And of I you. thought I'd, I'd wait on mailing these till I talk to you today, because I thought you may want some of these uh, and may want some other things I could send. But I'm sending you the... Milwaukee Studio Notes, notes column that uh, discusses uh, Dr. Bopp and Dick Davies' uh, presidential campaign, uh-huh. uh, and a, a picture that went along with it, which is uh, doesn't scan very well, but uh, right. <laughs> uh, you'll see Dick and Dr. Bopp together. It's probably their only shot uh, as a uh, as a ticket, and um, sending you also a scan of this. Uh, Columbia Records Radio Station 45. Oh, uh, wonderful. That, uh, that is what uh, what WWA would have played to keep them out of trouble with yeah. the FCC. And uh, I also have uh, some old WAWA surveys. Uh, one of them advertises the services of Dr. Bob for personal appearances and oh. uh, has a number of uh, interesting records in the top ten, tell it like it is, Aaron Neville, Mustang Sally, Wilson Pickett, Classics, uh, what what Doctor Bop used to call a Doctor Bop beast. Uh, he loved he loved uh, giving the best hits of the day. His uh, official confirmation as being a Doctor Bop beast. <laughs> well, uh, the others the thing I'm sending. I think you'll find most interesting. I have four weeks of the uh, WAWA survey where uh, Dick Davies' Stronger Than Dirt album charted on the uh, album uh, oh, charts. That's wonderful. On WAWA. And uh, that was, the album was out by October, but it's charting here, very interestingly, um, in, uh, in, in December. Hmm. It's charting in December of 67. Uh, the, um, uh, and into January of 68. And if we look at where it is here, he's, uh, he's, he's beating out Dionne Warwick, Sam and Dave, and Stevie Wonder. Oh, my God. Uh, and the Miracles. Uh, coming in uh, right behind Jimmy Smith and his wow. Respect album. And uh, the record hangs around. It's on their uh, their listener charts and their uh, their sales charts here for uh, for about two months. Wow. All right. That's impressive. So, uh, uh, and, and that record sold well uh, in the Milwaukee area. You, you could find these. I, I had no trouble finding copies of these two albums when mm-hmm. I bought them many years ago. Do you know, in, in the article that I found, there's a copy of, so it looks like Dr. Bop ran two different uh, campaigns for president, one in 68, one for 68, one for 72. Do you know, did yes, he make bumper stickers for the first there one? there was no further mention made of Dick Davey or any other running, right. running mate. Right. In fact, as I recall, uh, Dr. Bop said uh, uh, he didn't even need a running mate in 72 because he was so boss he should have been twins. <laughs> <laughs> Again, he had that bravado. And by the way, when you met him, he was just the kindest, nicest guy. Uh, there was none of that um, uh, that bravado when you met him in person. He was just a really nice guy. And the, and the kids loved him. All the kids loved Dr. Bob. And, yeah. Uh, uh, just a bigger-than-life character. But, um, but on air, uh, he was a tiger. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard a couple of the air checks that are on YouTube and stuff, and holy cow, that I can see why you wouldn't stop listening to the guy. Like, he just mm-hmm. so much power. 
Um, do you, were there actual bumper stickers for his first? Because uh, I'm going to hunt on eBay forever until I find uh, one. Pick one up for me too if you find <laughs> one. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, in '68, he did have buttons and bumper stickers. Oh man! My friend Ken Freck has one of the buttons uh, at his at his oldie shop. In fact, uh, he won't let it out of the shop. Uh, <laughs> I've tried to buy it from him, and he won't get rid of it. Um, you know, Ken would probably uh, be more willing to scan it and and, uh, and email it to you. At least you'd have, a, you'd have a scan of it. Holy cow. But uh, I can't get him to part with the thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a white button with red letters, WAWA's famous Dr. Bop for President uh, of the United States, 1968. That's so um, And it's not a tiny button. It's... Um, not the size of a little badge a minute button, uh-huh. um, but it wasn't a badge a minute. It was produced by an actual button producer. It, it's high quality. It's a, 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 a celluloid button. Um, and he also had bumper stickers. And uh, back in the day, if you sent a dollar to the radio station, he'd send you a bumper sticker and a button. Oh. Uh, now, I don't have any of those because, like an idiot, uh, of course, you can be an idiot at 16, which is how old <laughs> I was in 68. Sure. I didn't send for them, but <laughs> and I could have. I, I used to go over to the radio station on Saturdays. I could have easily picked those up, but I never did. Mm-hmm. Um, in 72, though, I was wise enough to uh, pick up a couple of bumper stickers, a, a red one and a green one from his 72 campaign. Oh, wonderful. And uh, those I, uh, those I do still have. But, um, but yeah, online you might find something like that. Who knows who has that in their collection and is willing to sell it. I always assumed that somebody who worked at that station, uh, O.C. White or Earl Gissing or Phil Klingler or one of those guys, probably has a box in the basement next to the furnace. Right. And it's filled with all this memorabilia, and they haven't gone through it in 50 years and it's going to go in a dumpster the minute they pass on. I know. I, I hate know. to say that, but that tends to be the end of the lifespan of a lot uh, of that stuff. I know. Oh, boy. That drives me nuts. <laughs> as, as, a, as a sort of amateur archivist, obviously, you know, and now obsessed with this one particular comedian, my brain is just like, what can I do to fix that problem? Which is nothing, but, you know, you, you hope. You hope something happens with it. Oh, my God. That's so wonderful. I, um... I, I first of all, I really appreciate you talking with me. I, I don't know what form this is going to take on the podcast. I think I'm going to do a Dick Davy follow up because I found a lot of other interesting things that I didn't get to mention on the show. Um, the first one that I did, uh, which is worth listening to, it's just it's a weird because normally the show is what you and I just did. It's just an interview, uh, but this that one is an edited episode where I'm just trying to find who Dick Davy really was. And I ended up finding his real identity almost by chance. It was a it was it was a freak. And if I hadn't noticed this one particular thing on a website, uh, I would never have found him. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I'm probably going to do some kind of follow up. What I did want to ask you is, do you think Bill Taylor uh, would be willing to talk on my podcast just about hi- himself? Because uh, I found his you know I found his his 45 very quickly online, and I I would love to t- I like to talk to comedians that maybe are not getting interviewed a bunch. Now what? Uh, I, I'm losing you here. Oh, sorry. Uh, you faded out here about uh, 15 <laughs> seconds ago, so I didn't get what you said. Sorry about that. No, I I would just love to interview your cousin Bill Taylor, uh, just in general, uh, because I like speaking to comedians that maybe you're not getting interviewed a bunch uh, on the podcast. Okay. About his own career, about comedians he went up with, about comedians he likes. I would suggest uh, 
Now, Bill also, he, he did that 45 uh, lullaby to Carolyn backed with income taxes and you. I saw that. I think they're both clever. Uh-huh. I think they stand up well. In fact, uh, Dickie Goodman really created that break-in style that was just genius on Dickie Goodman's part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Buchanan and Goodman put out a number of those break-in 45s. Uh, Bill was really following in their footsteps there. But I think his 45, I, I, on Citation Records, by the way, uh, that's the same, uh, it was recorded up uh, in Sauk City uh, and recorded and produced by the same guy who produced the uh, Mule Skinner's classic hit, Fender, uh, the Fenderman's classic hit, uh, Mule Skinner Blues, uh-huh. uh, which was a big instrumental hit in the early 60s. Well, anyway, uh, that record, uh, I think, is better than Buchanan and Goodman's stuff in some ways. It's funny. It's a funny record, and I think it still holds up well, uh, how he integrates the songs into what he's saying. And it's, they're, they're both brief. Uh, both sides of the record are about a, a minute uh, and 50 seconds or two minutes, or no longer than that. And they're, they're, they're funny sides. But after that, Bill uh, uh, formed a uh, partnership with another uh, disc jockey out in L.A., and went to Era Records. Uh, Era Records was run by Herb Newman, uh, the guy that wrote uh, uh, Wayward Wind for Gogi Grant, and he also wrote uh, Birds and the Bees for Jewel Akins under the, uh, 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 under the alias of uh, Barry Stewart. Uh-huh. Well, anyway, uh, Herb Newman had this record label out there, uh, Era Records, which had some... It was a small label, but it had a few hits. And uh, they recorded a comedy album, on Era Records, and um, uh, that comedy album was called "Have I Got a Problem?" Wait a minute, that and it familiar. was a comedy album that uh, dealt with uh, a psychiatrist on a late night uh, talk show, uh, it, very much like Frasier. Actually, uh-huh. the psychiatrist is taking calls from uh, a variety of listeners, all of whom have. Um, well, shall we say, rather unfortunate problems, to say the least. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, uh, an 88-year-old woman calls, and she's got a problem that she's pregnant. <laughs> of course, she isn't, and they have to talk her through that. And uh, at any rate, um, that album is uh, is on um, uh, Era Records, and um, called as Have I Got a Problem, and it's by uh, Bill Taylor, and uh, a, a fellow by the name of Edwards, who was his uh, partner. But Bill does all the voices. He does the elderly lady. He oh does all God. of the uh, imitations. Uh-huh. And um, uh, I have a copy of the album, uh, but um, uh, that's on era. And I think the number, well, I've got the record in front of me now. I just pulled it from my, my file here. This looks so uh, familiar. I've seen era this before. Era number E-603. So uh, if you're looking for Bill's stuff, uh, that one is out there. And if you want to do an interview with Bill, I'm sure he would be amenable to that. Uh, uh, Bill, uh, but Bill, Bill would be one of those uh, comedians who's uh, self-assured enough that he wants you to have heard his stuff. So of if you're going to do the interview oh, with course. him, you probably should hear the album and hear the 45 Absolutely. before you do it. And you could talk about uh, the Joey Bishop show. Uh, he found uh, he found Regis Philman to be very helpful to him, and he's actually toyed with the idea of trying to contact uh, Regis's people mm-hmm. to see if he can get uh, kinescopes of those mm-hmm. appearances. 
And I'm not sure what they saved on ABC from uh, the Joy Bishop show, but Bill would love to have uh, uh, copies of his appearances on that show. He also worked with uh, Mickey Finn, with Fred Finn, actually, uh-huh. uh, who had the Mickey Finn show on ABC. And uh, they were asked to tour the Mickey Finn show in the Middle East. And uh, Bill toured that show, believe it or not, in Saudi Arabia. Really? Uh, back in the 70s. Wow. Wow. So, uh, yeah, he would... Um, I think they even did a command performance for the for the royal family. Holy cow! But uh, uh, but yeah, Bill would uh, Bill would have a lot of interesting memories. And um, again, I can tell you, I think he's a funny guy. Yeah, uh, that's some prejudice, of course. But uh, <laughs> I've got some of his stuff, and uh, uh, I think that uh, I think I think his stuff's pretty good. So I'll, I, I can pass on to him that you'd be interested in talking to him. That'd be wonderful. I'm I'm in the middle right now of trying to hunt because you know it's so funny. I'm annoyed because I've had opportunities to buy this album before and I never picked it up. Uh, it was probably during those periods when I was poor. Uh, but yeah, I'm gonna have to buy this album shortly. And uh, I gotta see. If well, I can Bill's find still it. around. He's hale and hearty. Uh, he was living in Milwaukee till very recently, and mm-hmm. he just moved up north to. Uh, uh, to the area of Appleton, Wisconsin, but he's thinking moving back to Milwaukee in the spring because uh, he's going stir crazy up there. He can't find anything to do. <laughs> yeah, let let him know I'm interested, and in the meantime, I will hunt down his work. All right, and uh, please keep in touch. Uh, I'm not Absolutely. the easiest guy to reach except by phone. Uh, as an old goat, uh, <laughs> which I've become, uh, I've become something of a curmudgeon, and I don't do anything online except for search for things for my own pleasure, as, as you apparently do as well. Yep. But um, uh, I don't do emails. I I still write letters. I've got a 1924 Royal typewriter here that I still bang out my correspondence on, and uh, and and I find that yes, it is indeed still easy to buy typewriter ribbons, but. Uh, <laughs> But I, I, I've, I've discovered as, as an historian, I, need, I never need to apologize to anybody for that. Because the minute I tell them what I do for a living, they say, oh, well, you're well-equipped for life in the 15th century. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, can, uh, I can get away with this. But, uh, but if you ever want me, just give me a ring. You've got my home number here. And uh, we, we do have an answering machine. I have a little bit of high tech. And, uh, <laughs> and I'll get back to you if, you if you ever need me to say any more about Dick Davey or if you need to... Uh, facilitate me getting in touch with Bill. Uh, be more than happy to do that. I, I appreciate it, and I'll probably write you a letter in response to getting that. And at some point, I think we could have a, a proper discussion about. Since it sounds like you know you have a, a great perspective on uh, how comedy parallels history, I think we we could have some other lengthy discussions on that. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Oh yeah, I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to talk about that. Uh, you know, I I have such uh, fondness for uh, uh, the Alan Sherman albums. The uh, the old first family album, uh, even the derivatives of that, you know, yeah. as a guy oh, who collects yeah. that stuff, mm-hmm. you probably know I'm there was obsessed. another series of albums on Lori <laughs> records, uh, called the other family. Yes, I have. I think I have most of those. I think I could, yeah, be there, there, uh, there's the other family. And then the follow up was on roulette. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the roulette record is at home with the other family mm-hmm. and the cast was so much different, somewhat different, but it was the same franchise. And there also is a record done by the son of a Cuban exile uh-huh. uh, called The Last Family uh, that came out in both Spanish and English versions, and it's a, uh, it's a very nasty satire on, on Castro. Really? 
I have never in seen fact, that that's one. One of the few that I would call really nasty. Really, for that time. It I'm really fascinated. Is a, a nasty satire. Huh. And um, <clears throat> uh, it was recorded uh, in Spanish, and another uh, version recorded in English. And if you look up the last family, I believe the gentleman's name was Tito Hernandez. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a stand-up comic in South Florida and produced this thing after the first family album. And it's, uh, it's, it's rather vicious in its digs on, uh, on Castro. But, Interesting. Uh, but it's, uh, but, but those, those knockoffs of the first family album uh, were rather interesting. I'm well. That's that's an era I'm particularly fascinated with. I, I will say another episode last year I'm really proud of is where I interviewed Vaughn Meter's widow, and uh, we we spoke at length about his career. But I'm also yeah, I'm genuinely very fascinated in the other not first family first family albums. They're pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's, Vaughn Meter's one guy I wish I had met. Dick yeah. Davies, another guy I wish I had met. Yeah. I'm sorry to, to hear from you that he's long gone, but yeah. Uh, you know, some of the greatest times of my life were meeting people like uh, Henny Youngman and wow. meeting people like uh, uh, Marty Allen, uh, who I met when he was uh, in his 90s, not long before he passed on. He was still doing stand-up and had come to Milwaukee to do a stand-up show at uh, one of the casinos. And just a, just a really great, accommodating guy. But uh, to be able to tell somebody like that, that, you know, when I... <laughs> When I was 10 years old, I thought you were the funniest guy in the world. Mm-hmm. And to be able to say that to, to him face-to-face, I mean, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not j- so jaded that I can't admit to being a real fan of these guys. Right, right. Of course. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, well, uh, let, uh, we'll, we'll talk shortly about this. Uh, talk shortly again, I think. Uh, but um, I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. All right. Thank you All so right. much. All right. Well, it's great talking to you. And... Uh, uh, again, good luck with this project. I, 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 I will I will listen to these podcasts uh, myself, and I will be very interested in seeing uh, uh, what more you uncover. And uh, in the meantime, thank you for doing this. I of think course, you're, you're you're doing yeoman's work because uh, uncovering the story of a guy like this is just is just fantastic. And well, given the the the, the 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 dual personality here, yeah, uh, that. Uh, that uh, that he created, it, it's even more fascinating to me. So th- this this is going to make something that I think a lot of people are going to be interested in. I hope so. I hope so. And thank you. That's very kind of you. Hauser's perspective as a fan was something I'd been hoping to hear. Someone who didn't know him personally, but got to witness his brief moment in the spotlight. That's another piece of the puzzle you wouldn't think I might need, since there's clear evidence that Davey sold out the Apollo and released two records on Columbia, he was quite successful. Thing is, I just wanted that proof. That proof that he was out there and that people heard him. You can read a ton of ads advertising a performance, or read the one or two in-depth interviews he did, and those things paint a pretty clear picture, but when someone was there in any capacity, it lends some credence to the idea that this person was worth remembering, to those people who were invested only in this character he had created. For all they knew, that was the real guy. It rounds things out in the way I was hoping to this whole time. Of course, this still isn't the complete picture of Dick Davey. Along the way, even early on, I found mountains of details that didn't have a place in the last episode or in this one. It's one of the reasons I knew this had to at least be a trilogy. Of course, now it's open-ended. For instance, he'd performed so much on stage, in the theater, that is, non-stand-up performances, that I felt sure I'd find out some more information about them, but no. Right now I can't find out much else than what he listed as stage credits in his few newspaper articles. I found a ton of music in the copyright records from the 50s and 60s, 
by people named Dick Davey or Richard Hoffman, but a lot of that music turned out to be a gentleman who's still alive and doesn't have a pseudonym. As for the 10-gallon trio, I can't find any of the people involved, just yet. I got one response about a song written by Dick and a gentleman named Herb Wasserman, from Wasserman's son, Ron, also a musician. My dad was a lifelong New York City raconteur, musician, self-taught, made his living as a musician. In the 1950s, he was doing a lot of songwriting and jingle writing. And he, they were, back in the day, the way that worked is you would write a song and shop it around and hope for a hit. You know, you'd do a demo recording and hope for a hit. And uh, whoever had an idea for a song, they would be, okay, let's do it. And they'd probably sit down, you know, in a booth at the back of a bar and start working on it. And, and, and that's how I'm thinking that these two people got together. I would, I would imagine it's something along those lines. Ron has told me he'll dig for the sheet music in his dad's old boxes, but so far he hasn't found anything. Hard to say if he's likely to find anything at all, but the stuff is 60-plus years old now. Any work Dick Davey did at the time is increasingly less and less likely to be found, but my goal has been, if Ron finds it, to find some way to get a band to play it so we can at least get a taste of what it was like to hear Dick's music. Much as I love his comedy, the music part is also very fascinating, if elusive. He was a cantor, then a folk singer, then performed with the 10-gallon trio, which I also found out integrated comedic skits with their folk music. The more I think about it, I'm sad that I'll never get to hear him sing. All we can hear of his work, all the recorded audio there is, are two comedy albums and some talk show appearances, mostly Merv Griffin, that would be very pricey to license. It's been my dream just to get a taste of that thing that he eventually left in favor of comedy. All right, full disclosure. In August last year, that dream finally came true. Even in Shade, Arkansas. Just a scrawny hill off uh, Route 11, that's where it is. But I kind of like it there. I got a humpback mule, a plow, and a tater pot, eggs that are gonna hatch someday. Got my lord above and a good girl to love me. I'm the richest man in the world. Thank you, thank you, Lord above, for smiling down on me. I'm richer now than any man has any right to be. I got a plow and I got a mule and a girl from Tennessee. New York is nice for a northern town, but it's evening shade for me. I got a hump. Next time on the Comedy on Vinyl Family Albums miniseries, I talk with Firesign Theater archivist Taylor Jessen about two lost Dick Davy recordings that were recently uncovered and what he did to clean them up and what might happen with them next. One of them, the, the one that is an acetate that says Dick Davey at the Bitter End uh, mm-hmm. on June 5th, 1962, mm-hmm. he's definitely going on, he's full on board with the Dick Davey character. Uh-huh. And what's really interesting about this is that it's in front of a club audience, which yeah. I have to assume is a mainly white audience. Right, right. But he's amplifying the fact that he's doing this character that is getting more and more Jewish. (laughs) So join me next time. Thanks for listening, and as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment. 
PO Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15 plus years. Dress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah!